to Kid You Not, the monthly podcast on children's literature. Thank you so much for downloading and listening to our podcast. It is really appreciated. I'm Lauren Davis. And I'm Clementine Bove. We really hope you enjoyed last month's interview of Jonathan Stroud. If you haven't listened to it yet, you should definitely check it out. We hope to do more of these in the future, but for now we're back to our regular format, discussion of the nooks and crannies of children's literature. And this month's theme is... Wait, 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 wait. Don't say anything. Why not? Because, to kickstart our discussion, I would like to read out a passage from a children's book, and maybe our listeners will get the theme and much more from there. Jonathan knew that I was soon going to die. I think everyone knew, except for me. They knew at school, too, because I was away most of the time, coughing and always being ill. For the last six months, I haven't been able to go to school at all. All the ladies Mother Sue's dresses for knew it, too. It was one of them who was talking to Mother about it, when I happened to hear, although I wasn't meant to. They thought I was asleep, but I was just lying there with my eyes closed. And I went on lying there like that, because I didn't want them to see that I had heard a terrible thing, that I was soon going to die. I was sad, of course, and terribly afraid, and I didn't want Mother to see that, but I talked to Jonathan about it when he came home. Did you know that I'm going to die? I said, and I wept. Jonathan thought for a moment. Perhaps he didn't really want to answer, but in the end he said, Yes, I know. Then I cried even more. How can things be so terrible? I asked. How can things be so terrible that some people have to die when they're not even ten years old? You know, Rusky, I don't think it's that terrible, said Jonathan. I think you'll have a marvellous time. Marvellous, I said. Is it marvellous to lie under the ground and be dead? Oh, said Jonathan, it's only your shell that lies there, you know. You yourself fly away somewhere quite different. Where, I asked, because I could hardly believe him. To Nengiyala, he said. And this was an extract from The Brothers Lionheart, which is a children's classic by Astrid Lindgren of Pippi Longstocking fame. Maybe you will have guessed that the theme of today's episode is... Death, quite upliftingly. We'll try to make it as cheerful as it can possibly get. Okay, I think what is quite obvious in this passage is that death... This is the first page of the book, by the way, is that death is just a beginning. And in that case, it's not final. It is. It opens onto a new world. Some people would call it paradise. In the book, it's a world of adventure. And if you think about it, in a lot of children's books that take death as a primary theme, the death is the beginning of the book, not the end or the middle. So, strangely enough, children's publishing is actually quite open to the idea of, of death, uh, even in the first pages of a children's book. Yeah, even for all age groups, there are picture books that deal with death, right up to young adult books that deal with a the theme. And that's quite paradoxical because obviously Western children, at least, and nowadays, are completely protected from any mention of death. It's very frequent for people to even reach adulthood without ever having witnessed um, the death of a close family member or even a friend. And yet children's literature seems to be completely replete with references to death and with people dying all the time, parents and friends and grandparents. If you think of a lot of children's classics, like Little Women, a famous example, you can't think of that without remembering that Beth dies. And the funny thing about that is Beth doesn't even die in Little Women. She dies in the next book, <laughs> Good Wives. Yeah. But death has always been a part of children's literature. But in that era, in the Victorian era, death was far more a part of life than it seems to be now. Exactly. So how come children's authors and, and, and children's publishers are still you know, publishing all these books where children are very, very closely confronted to death? 
because I suppose the reality is children still have to deal with death. Mainly grandparents are the most common. And a lot of people think the function of children's literature is to prepare children for certain experiences and let them know what to expect in certain situations. There are lots of books that intend to prepare the child for a death, like the picture book Grandpa, by John Burningham. Yeah, that is the idea that children's books can help cope with experiences of life. I think we, we call it bibliotherapy, which is, you know, like art therapy, a way of, of teaching children about experiences of life, but on a vicarious level. And there's definitely a demand for books on this topic. Ask any librarian and they will have had a parent come up to them and say, can you recommend a book on death for my six-year-old. Parents are very concerned about introducing their child to this topic in a way that is safer and less personal. Yeah, and I think the term safer is quite important. I mean, if we... You've mentioned Grandpa by John Burningham. Actually, death is presented in such a soft way that it is almost ambiguous. You don't even... Well, an adult reader reading the book might um, understand that it is a question of death, but at the end of the book, of the picture book, when the grandfather disappears, a child who might not want to confront the idea of death directly might just think, oh, he's gone on holiday. Um, So there seems to be a desire to tell children about death through literature, but at the same time, a form of... um, Perhaps not hypocrisy, because we're dealing with a very, very grave theme, but at least some form of um, wariness of tackling the theme too directly. We have so many children's books, for example, that look at deaths of animals and as a displaced way of tackling the death of someone more important, perhaps. In fact, there's a book, Annabelle Pitch's My Sister Lives on the Mantelpiece, uses the death of an animal as an overt device through which uh, the male protagonist finally understands his father's grief for his sister who died five years before. But here we're dealing even more with mourning than with, de- with death, really. We're dealing with um, the people who are left behind when someone dies and the way they cope with it. So on the blog a few months ago, um, I reviewed Artichoke Hearts by Sita Brahmashari, which I think is one of the best um, young adult books of of the the past few years. And in this book, uh, we see the the day-to-day life of of a young girl who is slowly losing her grandmother to cancer. And here again, it is all about the process of mourning, of preparing for the death of the, the close parent and then mourning for it. But... Talking about the death of a parent or a grandparent is also a way of focusing the debate not on death, but on the process of grief that follows death. Are our children's books really tackling death? Yeah, well, you could say that most of them actually tackle mourning. All my favourite books that I can think of that deal with the theme are now actually they don't deal with the death of the sister or the mother. They deal with the grieving process and what happens afterwards because most of them seem to start with a death. So do you think there's an interest for publishers to promote books that will have a therapeutic effect but without uh, really tackling the big philosophical question of what happens when you die? What, how can you prepare to this incredible finality that death is? And publishers don't seem to be focusing on that question. They seem to be focusing on the question of what can we do for the child and for their parents if they're confronted to that in their life? Well, I think that's a much easier question to tackle than the big philosophical question of what happens when you die. It could be argued that most presentations of death in children's literature are very calming in that they're never final. 
there's always some sort of continuous effect. For example, Philip Pullman's The Amber Spyglass, death is definitely not the end, and Lyra saves death from being in the end because she essentially ensures that people die and then become part of everything. It's still very yeah. spiritual. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's an interesting example. Let's talk about Pullman's Ember Spyglass. Spyglass. That's the third book in the in the His Dark Materials trilogy. And what happens in it is that um, the heroine discovers a place very much like hell in Greek mythology. And she frees the death who could not um, really reach finality by offering them the opportunity to leave hell and to dissolve in billions of little molecules and into the sky and into and um and even this incredibly final last move is completely aestheticized because the idea is in imagination in your imagination even though there is nothing beyond death your your body will will you know be the part of all the new flowers and all the new stars and that's a very comforting idea isn't it that's lee scoresby's quote which i was about to say (laughs) but yeah it's a very comforting idea because it doesn't feel final you don't just stop your life or at least your essence will continue to be part of the world and maybe this is something that is I don't even think this is specific to children's literature actually there are many adult novels that deal with what happens after death like Mitch Alban's Five People You Meet in Heaven I think it's a very human preoccupation to or human his human nature to not want to acknowledge death as the end so if you present it in a cyclical or never-ending fashion it's comforting not just for the child but for the author well i think even more for the the (laughs) as usual it's always more comforting for the adult than the child but yeah let's talk about that what makes death so different in children's literature than it is in adult literature and i think there is a difference and you might not agree with me, but I think that the difference would be that in adult literature, it is okay to not be able to mourn. It is okay to, for a death to be completely meaningless, to be completely unfair, and to be completely devoid of any possibility for the, for the people who are left to grieve and to achieve some kind of, um, of wholeness in grief. Whereas in children's literature, no death is meaningless. People are going to find some form of meaning to maybe not get over the death of someone, but at least find something. So let's talk about some a device that is very popular in children's books about mourning and about death. The idea that death is, or the death of a friend or a parent or someone can be restorative, that by someone's death, the person left behind is empowered to be their true self in a way that wasn't possible. Which is a horrible thought when you think about it. But you've got Jacqueline Wilson's Vicky Angel about two best friends, one of them very loud and extrovert, the other quiet and shy and dominated by the louder child. The louder child is killed in a car accident and the whole book revolves around the quiet child attempting to come out of her shell and engage in activities that she would never have had the courage to when being dominated by the best friend she'll always miss vicky but she's found this whole new side to herself that she never had before similarly my favorite book of the last couple of years the sky is everywhere by jandy nelson begins with lenny grieving for the her sister who died completely randomly no reason to it and the novel explores her neuroses and 
what she sidelined because she was so in awe of her sister she didn't try herself she was too shy to attempt things so it's very interesting that in this way the death isn't just portrayed as something to get over the death gives these girls the gift of empowerment and the space to be who they truly are is how the books present it. I find that very, very, very problematic because then you focus on one character and you create empathy in the reader for this character, but completely forgot that for the completely forget that for the other character, the one who's dead, the finality is absolute. There is no turning back, and this if this death means something, it is only you know for the slightly egotistical aims of the person who's left behind. So there's something very. A controversial about this reformative tendency to make death meaningful, to make it ben- benefit other people, whereas in the reality of life, well, you know, most deaths are absolutely incomprehensible, unfair, and if they benefit anyone, the benefit is very, you know, very difficult to acknowledge compared to the sort of grief that accompanies it. So maybe once again, these books present a vision of death try to sort of clothe it in meaning but do not correspond to the real the reality of, of what it represents i don't think the writers would quite see it in that way i yeah, understand the writers never see it in that way do they? <laughs> i understand your your sentiment but maybe for them the death of the relative or friend is the price to pay for that emancipation so let's say that maybe the price to pay, as you say, for a better value of what life really offers as possibilities is the awareness that people well, die. Maybe not of what life really offers, but the pri- the death is the price for their increased understanding of themselves because before they only understood themselves in relation to okay. the other person. Okay, I, I still think that it's... <laughs> very problematic <laughs> but I'm, I mean I'm ready to I'm more than ready to acknowledge the quality of, of these books but to me adolescent novels particularly seems to be completely fascinated with death death is there as um, death is there as a haunting force in these books we can talk at length and probably we will someday about Hunger Games oh gosh yes <laughs> um, The Hunger Games by Susan Collins, um, where you know the premise of the book is that children have to kill each other uh, until only one remains. We can talk a lot about the fascination for death in these books and the sort of um, I think they sort of anesthetize the the reader to the reality of adolescent death. For me, the problem with the Hunger Games is that you are anesth or it tries to anesthetize the reader to so the possibility of some adult deaths. I found huge problem with the book in that on the one hand it was trying to present these Hunger Games, this reality TV show where teenagers had to kill each other as an awful, awful, awful thing. And yet as the reader, you were willing the protagonist to kill some of them. And so some of their lives were worth more than others. And a very, very lazy and convenient narrative technique. Obviously, they were all horrible apart from the ones you want to survive which i thought was very lazy why did we never actually mourn any of the other contestants that's the idea that no, not all children and not all protagonists are equal 
um, you know, before death. So death in these books is sort of, um, it, it's it's a plot device, it's a theme, it surrounds all the protagonists, It's a, it, there's also a, so, some kind of a death drive, would you say it like that? There's a sort Definitely. of a frenzy towards death. The incredible success of Hunger Games, you know, calls into question the degree to which, um, to which this fascination with death um, and in this case, violence, but it's not always the case. This fascination with death works in, in adolescent novels. I mean, we can talk also about books that um, make death into a very emotional experience. I mean, you you talked about Before I Die, Once mm. on the Blog, by... Jenny Downham. Do you want to say more about this? Death is used as the sole plot device. It is about a 16-year-old girl dying of terminal cancer who very near the opening of the book decides she no longer wants to prolong her life because it's too difficult. I found it unbelievably manipulative because I did not think it was a good book, even though I was in tears on the bus. I was in tears on the bus because I was crying at the idea of a 16-year-old girl dying, not at the writing. You're talking about manipulation. I think that's very important because the problem with death is that it's not an innocent, an innocent theme, but it's very, um, it relies on very easy responses from the reader, or oh, at least it can. And if we consider different forms of death, homicide, accident, terminal illness, suicide... suicide. <laughs> Suicide, I mean, suicide in, in, in adolescent novels is a highly problematic theme because books for adolescents are completely full of references to suicide, whether it is, you know, actually, whether, whether people actually commit suicide or uh, entertain suicidal ideas. I think, okay, here we have to acknowledge that there is a long tradition in literature of books with young protagonists that talk about suicide, so uh, Sorrows of Young Werther by Goethe, obviously was at the time there is this perhaps apocryphal legend that after uh, the publication of, of Sorrows of Young Werther, lots of young men committed suicide exactly like Werther, using the same technique and leaving very dramatic um, notes. And it's not, it's not a, 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 a crazy question or even a Puritan question to ask, are these books about suicide problematic? The whole Romeo and Juliet plot, we find it everywhere. We find it in Twilight, we find it in... Twilight, so by Stephanie Mayer, we find it in Noughts and Crosses by Mallory Blackman, we find it in Forbidden, in Forbidden by Tabitha Suzuma, we even find it in Harry Potter with the self-sacrifice at the end. I mean, they seem to be obsessed with suicide. I suppose a lot of the time it's closed behind something else, isn't it? So Twilight is closed behind the fact that she doesn't die, Bella becomes a vampire, she's not actually so dead. So again, like a finality. Noughts and Crosses a noble self-sacrifice thing right and Harry Potter again I think is slightly different because that's a very Christian yeah sort of a very Christian thing because it's very very like Jesus isn't it yeah yeah and (laughs) it is for the greater good so so suicide is very often presented like a noble option isn't it yeah definitely and it's strange in a way that um that there aren't more I don't know maybe you maybe maybe you don't agree with that but it seems to me that there aren't more questions being asked really um to adult mediators of of of, of, um, of adolescent literature about the, the prominence of suicide I mean okay here again maybe I'm being ultra serious but suicide is the third cause of adolescent death that is that is very very problematic I mean I think I don't know what the first causes are probably um accidental and illness um, but the third cause of adolescent death is glorified is glorified in adolescent novels if not 
for being a noble act himself, but for helping others realize that life is worth living. And we know that adolescent brains are literally hardwired to encourage risky behavior and risk-taking as well. These are knowledge from psychology that can inform our understanding of, of children's books and their effect. But then there's also an argument that teenagers' feelings are incredibly intense because of the rush of hormones and therefore they like reading about very extreme experiences because this can be lived vicariously mm-hmm. through Absolutely. the Absolutely, so that's the, the opposite argument which is that actually these books help experience that but help prevent them in, in, in the same way. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, I would agree with that if I didn't know that there are actually a number of very important studies about suicide that show um, that people that hearing about suicide uh, heightens the risk of triggering suicide in people who are depressed or um, or at least um, who are very seriously considering it. Yeah, I think we can't always hide ourselves behind the idea of that vicariousness is safe. And, and that it's always exo- like exercising our demons and everything because I don't think it's always true. And in this particular case, I would be very cautious. I would agree with you there, but in a lot of these books that we've been referring to, death is not the end. The suicide isn't the end. Harry Potter may sacrifice himself, but he is reborn. And it turns out that actually he didn't sacrifice himself. He only sacrificed the Horcrux that was attached to him. And Twilight, it's not the end. She lives on as a vampire. And in Noughts and Crosses, it's not the end because his child lives on. And that's a problem, I'd say. Because that's a problem because death, you know, is is the end. (laughs) And once again, going back to the differences between children's literature and adult literature, there is a sort of taboo of representing death as it is and more of representing death as adults would like to think children imagine it that is to say some terrible terrible event but that can but that can be dealt with and an event that has some transformative quality on the world around that makes life more valuable there's one thing that we haven't talked about is the funny dimension of death mm. uh, the number of um, you know skeletons we're thinking of funny bones by the albergs the the young the, the little what's it called the little ghost casper casper, oh, yeah. the, little casper ghost, the friendly ghost the friendly ghost <laughs> You know, all these skeletons, all these, all these um, ghosts, all these sort of forces of, of, of hell um, that appear in children's literature, but in a very comical way. And I think, a court, I mean, I, to me, this is a much healthier way of dealing with death. It's of, it's of exploring its, its sort of comical side, because that is more of, an, of a way of exorcising it, of acknowledging its presence all around us, but giving it... A twist. It's like in Harry Potter with the pocket, where they where they um, have to laugh at it. Exactly, have to laugh at, at their fears to make them go away. You know, I would think that th- that this is um, an efficient way of dealing with death, and also one that de-dramatizes it while recognizing that it that it is there and that it's all around us, and that children must learn to envisage their finality, which which arrives quite early on. I mean, I remember I was about perhaps seven years old when I when it dawned on me for the first time that I was going to die and that there would be a finality to my life. Children are equipped to deal with this psychologically and it's a question of knowing whether the books that we give them in order to do so don't actually prevent this very important realisation from happening. Well, um, my granddad died earlier in the year and my younger sister, obviously, it was very difficult for her to deal with this because she's only nine, eight at the time and there was nothing that 
could she couldn't really make sense of what had happened and she wasn't allowed to go to the funeral and I was asked to read a poem at the funeral and I asked Lucy what she would read and she chose Michael Rosen's poem Haribo which is about a boy whose granddad has died or it's a little bit more indirect than that it's the narrator's friend's granddad has died and it really made her feel part of the process by selecting that poem and she re- it, it helped her understand even though it's just about grief rather than directly the granddad dying it really helped her feel like she was part of the funeral and part of what was going on because she'd helped select this literature it's very important that children are given the opportunity to explore the final nature of things because this poem does not offer any hope of eternal life any suggestion of a life beyond that but maybe what it offers is putting into language something that is so difficult to acknowledge Exactly, and I know that, Claire, you are less fond of this, but the utility of children's literature and direct practical uses for it can often be quite important. Because I can't tell you how much this this meant to my sister that I read this because she wasn't allowed to go because she'd been deemed too young. Once again, we have the idea that children are just protecting from death all the time and are giving are given verbal, you know, indications as how to deal as to how to deal yeah. with it, but they're never faced with it. Exactly. So she was basically told by my family that she was too young to deal with it and therefore she wasn't she was excluded from that part of the and process. Maybe it's this exclusion that may, that creates afterwards this fascination for death in children and, and teenage literature. It maybe it's omnipresent in in verb because because they are excluded from it in um, in you know, visually and 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 in and in reality. But it's great if they can find, um, like your sister did, some comfort in in a very well crafted piece of poetry about it. And here again, we're going back to the discussion about quality bet- be- between you know the paranormal romance that that glorifies suicide and between this uh, between that and this short poem by Michael Rosen which is beautiful um there is a world to be explored and speaking of paranormal romance we actually haven't discussed that as a genre but that has a many of these books have a fascinating attitude towards death death is not the end in any of them yeah once again they're completely escapist aren't they um lauren kate's fallen the premise of that is reincarnation every time the main character dies she is Mm. reborn there is no end to her life and twilight is literally an ode to living forever so they they seem very gothic but actually they evade the theme they don't tackle it they evade they evade it completely I would like to perhaps enlarge the conversation to children's literature as a, as a medium and children's literature as an adult endeavour. Adults, by putting so much death in their, in their books and making it so unreal, so far away from what it actually represents for someone to die and for someone to witness someone else's death. I would be tempted to think that this is a, a bit of an easy way to clothe their own fears into narrative and with pretty words and pretty and pretty images. And of course, sometimes, once in a while, there's going to be a true text about death and a, and a text about death that really tackles the question in a very beautiful way. I mean, I'm thinking of Duck, Death and the Tulip by Wolf Erbrush, oh. which is a beautiful picture book, extremely controversial because it presents um, the, the sort of... Um, inextricable link between a living person and death. Um, 
would there even be children's literature if that if death didn't exist if you could just go on living forever would there be such an impulse from the adults to tell children about life and to tell children to fill their lives with exciting things would would that even exist maybe death just subsumes all children's literature because the reason why adults want to talk to children is that they know that they're going to die. Some of your comments about the author, I think, are taking it a bit far. I think a lot of the reason death is portrayed the way it is as not the end is because that is what adults think children can handle. They don't think that they could cope with the finality of it and it's they think that it will be easier for them if they are told Grandad will live on in heaven mm. or it's not the end. Because that's what they tell themselves, maybe. Yeah, it's maybe it's the easy way yeah. out. <laughs> and also we don't see all the books that don't get published. No, that's a very valid point. There's a huge concern now with what will make money and what will sell and publishers are increasingly reluctant to take risks on perhaps more controversial novels that they don't think people will buy. And something a very interesting force on children's books that people forget about is parents parents on the whole buy books for their children or librarians are in charge or the gatekeepers of what books the children in their school will read there's a huge amount of adult pressure outside of the publisher and author exerted on Mm. what children can and can't read and can deal with and can deal deal with because we have to remember that in children's literature is what adults think children can deal with it's Mm. not representative I think think there's still enough in children's literature aside from death Clementine to explore but it is always there isn't it the The awareness at least some kind of awareness of transience which can be in anything you you can you can explore the passing of time and the idea of transience with anything including things that don't even mention the word death and I think it is directly or indirectly a major, major theme in children's literature and one that can't be ignored. Okay, well, this is the end of episode four of Kid You Not podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, we hope you enjoyed it, and we hope that next month you'll uh, enjoy it too for our episode on paranormal romance, which is going to be a tiny bit different because we're going to have interviews um, interspersed in the middle of our discussion. If you have any questions about what we've said or if you vehemently disagree with some of our conclusions, please comment on our blog, write to us, email us on kidyounotpodcast at gmail.com. And our blog is kidyounotpodcast.com. See you next time. Bye.